I think everyone got a chance to like be normal. Yeah. And we're like, oh, I like this too. (laughs) (laughs) 93X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast with Stephen Hyden. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and uprocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. My guest today is Sean Tillman, a.k.a. Harmar Superstar, the sole sex god of the 21st century. I've had him on my show this week because um, he's a supporting player in what's probably the biggest rock book of the year so far, uh, which is Meet Me in the Bathroom. Uh, it's an oral history about early 2000s New York City rock bands like The Strokes, Interpol, Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, all the DFA stuff with James Murphy. Uh, it's a comprehensive book talking about New York rock between 2001 and 2011. It's written by a journalist named Lizzie Goodman, and um, it's a fabulous book. I cannot recommend it highly enough. I'm sure that if you listen to this podcast, you probably follow the music media. So you, I, I would be shocked if you did not know about this book already. A lot of people are talking about the book. There's been stories that have been spun off about it. There was an excerpt, I think it was in New York Magazine, uh, talking about Ryan Adams and the Strokes, the relationship between those, those two entities and how Ryan Adams essentially, or I guess I, sh- I should say allegedly, introduced heroin into the Strokes camp. I know when I read that passage, I was like, I'm going to love Meet Me in the Bathroom. This book is the definition of my shit. (laughs) It has more stuff like this. And fortunately, it does. There are so many good stories about the bands of that era. The Strokes are essentially the, the spine of the book. It returns to that band periodically. And the rise and fall of the Strokes, it acts as a microcosm in a way of sort of the rise and fall of that of that music scene. It's a fascinating story. And I wanted to have Sean on to talk about it because he had this very interesting perspective. He, on one hand, was friends with all these bands. He was in the Strokes camp. He was on the, the first big Strokes tour, the big national tour that they did, right when Is, Is This It came out in 2001, right after 9-11, he was the opening act, and he was uh, Julian Casablancas's unofficial bodyguard <laughs> during that time. So he, he was an eyewitness to all this stuff, and he later became acquainted, acquainted with the members of Interpol and of the AAS. He knew the Killers people. Uh, he knew Jack White. So he's friends with all these people, um, but, you know, he wasn't in the middle of the storm. You know, he, he wasn't in the strokes. He didn't, he doesn't have that perspective. He was close enough to observe it. And yet he has, he has enough remove from it to have his own perspective on it. So he seemed like a great character in this book. He has so many good quotes in the book and he's here in Minneapolis, which is where I am. Just seemed like a great guest to have on. And fortunately he was a great guest. We had a very fun conversation talking about his career a bit, um, but also just what it was like to be in the midst of this explosion that happened in New York music in the early 2000s. So I'm excited to get to that conversation. But before we do, I want to tell you about this week's sponsor. And uh, it's our old friends at ZipRecruiter.com. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. 
Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash celebration. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash celebration. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash celebration. All right. So me and Sean, we talked for about an hour or so. We talked about the book, talked about where all the people in that book are now. And it was an interesting thing to realize that for all the drama that happened in New York at that time, and, and you know, if you're into sort of stories about rock debauchery, you know, people doing extravagantly silly things while under the influence of cocaine, you know, if that's something that you enjoy reading about, you're going to enjoy this book. I, I highly recommend that you pause this podcast and you buy the book right now, if that is your thing, especially if you're into rock stars doing that sort of thing. There was so much of that going on in New York at that time in the early 2000s, and yet a lot of these people, they made it to the other side. They're doing okay now. And um, Sean is one of those people. Uh, he will tell you that he uh, did a lot of insane things back then. Um, but uh, I think you'll find in this conversation that he is a pretty mild-mannered guy <laughs> now, especially if you're used to the Harmar superstar persona. Like I said, the sort of soul, soulful sex god thing that he has on stage. When you just talk to him, he's just a guy. <laughs> and uh, he's, a, he's a very sweet guy. So I had a really fun time talking with him. And I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Uh, this is me with Sean Tillman, a.k.a. Harmar Superstar, talking about Meet Me in the Bathroom. So like when I texted you like a couple weeks ago asking if you'd come on the podcast, yeah. I think at that point you said that you hadn't read the book yet and i think you even said that like you had been interviewed like five years ago i was way longer than that i think i can't even remember when i got interviewed for that book so i i feel like you were like i'm not even sure what i said yeah exactly <laughs> i think i was waiting for a copy to come in the mail and i think i got it like that day or the next day so have you had a chance to look at it yet yeah i've read most of it i'm like 500 pages in and then i kind of like started doing stuff last week and i haven't finished the last hundred or maybe it's like sometimes i put off like you know unpacking the last box for like <laughs> two years so I don't so it's not officially done you know right right well I mean like how do you I mean obviously you were around during this period what's it like to read a book about it um it's it's cool it was like a trip down memory memory lane like to like the old the, you know the early 2000s although I was like you know it's kind of I was talking to Karen O about it the other day um we're both like into the stories from our friends perspectives but we're both like not ready for the 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 uh Ots nostalgia yet you know what i mean like that's like it seems a little early yeah <laughs> but but uh it's cool i like i like the book a lot it's like i just i hope there's not a flood of more yeah i mean it seems like this book has kind of kicked off a little nostalgia yeah. in a way. people are there's all these stories about it people are talking about the the bands from that period i mean before we get into talking about like like what you were doing doing during that period I, i'm just like as a big picture thing like what are your impressions of of that period looking back. I mean, I mean, it was, I mean, at this point, I mean, it kind of just confirms that we're all old now, but, um, <laughs> but, but, uh, but I think like just everybody was just sort of like fresh and, uh, like a little, just, just naive and not, not aware of where life would go. You know what I mean? Like yeah. everybody seems a little more uncertain and, uh, and now when you read back people's like accounts, it's a bit more like world weary as opposed to then when we were just sort of like running wild in the streets. Right. Know? But I think that's everybody's like 20s, you know? Yeah. Well, and there's definitely <laughs> you know? an element too of like mythology going on. Like in that book, there's people, yeah. you know, I feel like there's so many New York periods like this where, you know, people talk about the late seventies, like where they were like, well, that's when New York was still dangerous and, you know, things were exciting. And now people are talking about the early 2000s <laughs> yeah. like that too. It seems and like, when we were in the early 2000s, people were like, yeah, this is tame. You should have seen this shit in the seventies. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like, you know, and there are passages in the books or in the book or people being like, we were swimming in cocaine. <laughs> it was a sea of white. And you're just like, not really. It was like, everybody was like, holding a nickel bag and not sharing with each other and like going into the bathroom by themselves or like with one girl or whatever. You know what I mean? Like right. it wasn't like this like crazy, I mean there were parts, you know, but it was basically like, uh, like the most like retrobate like hours when you'd be up after the dark room or something at like seven in the morning at Jason Barron's house or something like just <laughs> above his own bar, yeah. which is just sort of like, 
anywhere or, you know, I feel like Minneapolis turns into that. Right. Exactly. You know what yeah. I mean? Like now. So it's like, it's not like uh, a mythologized era. It's just like uh, a time when uh, we were younger and had worse drugs or something. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I feel like maybe part of the mythology that people are uh, projecting out of that era, I think there's a sense with some people that that was... You know, it's the beginning of the 21st century, but it all—it kind of feels more like the end of the 20th century, at least in terms of like a certain kind of rock stardom or yeah. like rock and roll swagger. Like, there hasn't, <sighs> there's still great bands and all that, but there isn't necessarily like those kind of people who have like the great, who have the cool looking pants and are you know doing the blow yeah. backstage and all that or stuff. Or maybe, maybe it's like, I don't know, maybe it's like the last era for a lot of the people in the book who actually are still playing. In right. a band, you know what I mean. A lot of people are still doing music, or, or, um, you know, like still in the field, but like kind of doing more of like the like kind of corporate work, or yeah. you know what I mean, like. Well, like Karen O was at the Oscars. Yeah, I mean that's great, ago. you know, and I yeah. love that. I love everyone's kind of like coming to their own weird, like uh, compartment of what it is. But uh, you know, when you read in the book, like, like Fab seems really depressed. <laughs> about being in the Strokes, you know what I mean? Which I'm sure that was just like his mood that day when he got interviewed. Well, in, in the Strokes, <laughs> like, yeah, right. Well, in, in the Strokes really are kind of like the backbone of that book. I yeah. mean, kind of the, the book goes back to them and it's, you know, their rise and fall during that period kind of mirrors the larger scenes kind of rise and fall yeah, in a way. Yeah, totally. And like, I know like that you are still friendly with them. Like I, Julian Casablanca has produced your last record. So yeah. I assume like, do you know, like have they read the book? Do they have any feelings uh, I haven't, about this? I haven't talked to them about it. I'm sure that I'm sure they had, I mean, I don't know how they couldn't at this point just to even see what they said. Right. I was really surprised that they even got interviews with Fab and Julian to tell you the truth, like, and how like, um, truthful and kind of like open, like everyone, including like Ryan gentles and just everybody was like kind of just about the whole time. Um, yeah. You know, I, I I could see Nick Valencia being like very open about it and just kind of just chill, um, and Albert too. But like uh, Julian's a super private person, you know. So like to see him even like contribute to the book was really super surprising. Well, yeah, and he has like a reputation for being a tough interview yeah. too with people, think, and and he is actually pretty candid and forthright. In yeah, his I think like I had one of the only interviews with him in the last five years was i on I'm your like, podcast yeah on my podcast <laughs> and i think he did it because he was putting out my record and was like oh cool i'll just help right help it's, you help me help you just talking to a friend yeah yeah but i mean because i mean you know the the big headline from the book or one of the big ones was that whole thing about ryan adams and the strokes and yeah like, like were you aware of all that stuff oh yeah i mean i was around at that point like kind of just you know intermittently and and ryan was definitely part of the the whole scene through like that bar in niagara where everybody hung out um that like Johnny T and, and, uh, and, and those guys owned, but, um, uh, I mean, he was, de- I mean, at that point it's, it's, it's weird to read now. Cause at that point he was definitely an asshole. You know what I mean? That we were all kind of <laughs> like, well, he's cool, but he's like, can be just such an asshole. And, uh, and I think that's like, like was at the time kind of like an overwhelming kind of, uh, like just sort of consensus <laughs> because, you know, and, <laughs> And it all had to do with just everyone being cranky and on drugs, and he was very, very deep into that. And uh, and um, so I think now it's weird to read it because he's such so chilled out and so like sober and just like more of just like a has this childlike energy that's all devoted to like rock and roll and pinball and like you know <laughs> right. what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So so it's a little like cringeworthy to read it and just be like fuck. That's, I feel so. I feel a little bad for him, like in his representation. But it's not like untrue. You know yeah. what I mean? He's probably just like. It's probably just sad to read it if you're him. You yeah, know, it is. Although I wonder if there's some element of like, not that he'd be proud of these headlines that Ryan Adams introduced the strokes to heroin. I mean, that was sort of how it was reduced. Yeah, but I mean, it's New York City. Like anyone, they were all going to get introduced to heroin at some point, I'm guessing, just like growing up there. You know what I mean? Right, like, but I was just going to say that I, there is an element, though, of like the musicians in that scene and musicians of that time, like where they were maybe aspiring to like an old, old world version of rock stardom and, yeah. like, and, and, and of sleaze and all that stuff yeah, exactly. and embracing it. So I wonder, I mean, maybe not pride. Pride's not the right word, but I wonder... It, in a way, it kind of shores up 
rock and roll bonafides. Yeah. Like, you see these stories. Well, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's that thing too. It's like, I mean, Albert had always romanticized it. He even says in the book, he was like always obsessed with shooting up heroin. He knew he would someday cause he just romanticized it in his head. Does <laughs> like even a teenager, you know? Right. And so I think it really came down to more of like, you know, the other dudes like being protective Right. And trying to like, you know, keep Ryan out and which I think really hurt his feelings when they had like a meeting about him. You know what I mean? And like we're like, you can't hang out with us anymore, which I don't remember that. I I can't remember rumblings of that being said, but Yeah. Uh I wasn't you know, I wasn't there for that meeting. It's like it was not necessary for me to be there. So like <laughs> I mean like you have a much different perspective on this than I do because you were there and you knew those guys, you knew them as people. Like well, Yeah. But that... I was like the intermittent kind of like interloper that would like dive bomb in for two weeks and then like go out and go do my thing and right come back, you know but like i was you know just a, a fan like, yeah yeah this, i was like you know 23 or so like when is uh, is this it came out and to me like i remember watching that video for uh, i guess it would have been uh last night and just seeing like the camera pan across the band and like i was like this looks like a fucking band yeah like, i was so excited yeah, totally. by just how they looked yeah exactly and the sound was great i mean my impression of their story is always that they were this close-knit gang of friends who just had their relationships eroded by all the sort of usual yeah behind the music stuff i mean is that more or less yeah true? i mean basically they kind of just went through the ringer like all together and they were like you know really hot very young you know like group like and actually just like hot as far as like just like uh like cultural uh cachet went like you know what i mean they were immediately just like cartoon characters of themselves that they loved you know what i mean they're like this is amazing yeah but then all of a sudden it just went too big too fast and they were like kind of all struggling with where they wanted it to end up and and uh julian's got um a very uh firm grip on the reins of where it's going you know and like i think when you're in the public eye like that i think all that stuff can kind of kind of make you collapse with like feeling out of control of your own situation and maybe like you're like sort of some sort of part of a plan. You don't even know what the end of the script is. You know what I mean? It's like you're like acting out a thing. You don't know what your the end game is. Well, and like there was so much hostility towards them too. They were obviously adored in the press and they got a lot of positive attention. But my memory of it at the time was that you either loved the Strokes or you hated them. And there was so much, there were so many rumors that like people were writing songs for them, that they were sort of yeah, like the monkeys or which something. Which is like such bullshit. Like that right. was never true. And that's hilarious. Um, but like, like they're just, yeah, I mean, just, just intensely rehearsed, just right. gang of people that just like went out and like promoted their own gigs. And they were all like, you know, once they decided how they were going to dress, they were like that. Right. 100% of the time, well, like, like, out on the streets, summer day in the middle of August, wearing suits, like, hanging up their own flyers. Right. we were just like, who the fuck are these guys? <laughs> They're like, it's unreal. Well, and that, I mean, and that, <laughs> I mean, that's another hallmark of that time. Like, all those bands had such a, like, firm grasp of aesthetics, like, yeah, visual aesthetics. Like, totally. they looked great, like, not just the Strokes, but obviously Interpol and Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and the Hives. And they all, like it's like they wore costumes. They yeah. wore rock band costumes and they were really good at looking cool. Yeah. Cause nobody was doing that. I mean, honestly, before all those bands kind of were around and, and made it and made rock and roll like a thing again. Um, New York didn't have like any bands. It was like amazing. I remember just like going through in my early bands, like Kelvin crime and Sean on like playing at brownies or mercury lounge and them asking like who we wanted to play with from New York. And we were like, always like there was just nobody like, either any of like the leo brothers like ted chris or danny's bands and that's like all i could ever think of or, that would be around like Ryko. so you just say like the ramones yeah <laughs> exactly like, uh, yeah all these, blondie is blondie yeah, around there yeah exactly and it's like so who can we talk into like playing before us at this hundred capacity venue there were just no other bands yeah it was really weird i was always like i thought this was like new york you know and then all of a sudden it like flipped like a switch like like all of a sudden strokes came out and people were like oh yeah rock and roll <laughs> mooney suzuki obviously was before that and around but like they were too big to you know what i mean yeah to just ask a favor like you know what i mean like it was just sort of a 
there was there was just not much, you know, and like John Spencer wasn't playing that much, and when he did, it would be like you know a huge show. So it's not like you could just like pal around and <laughs> right. meet him, you know. Right. So like, okay, so you, <laughs> and you just mentioned like you you were playing in these bands in the '90s, like Shanana and what was the other band? And Calvin Crime. Calvin Crime. But then the first Harmar Superstar record came out in 2001, right? Yeah, it was I think it might have been like 2000 or maybe, yeah. It's like around there. There's like an EP, like 99 or 2000 or something like that, yeah. But kind of around the time that this other stuff's going <clears throat> yeah. on. Yeah, no, like, totally. We all like, kind of like grew up together in that sense. Yeah. I mean, like, did you end up getting sucked into that world just as like, like how did that happen? Like, were oh, you touring okay. with them? Like, or this did you meet them story. elsewhere? I was, uh, I was a big fan of this band, the Rondells, um, who members have gone on to do a bunch of stuff. I think the um Oakley, the drummer and singer, is now in the Black Lips. But um uh I loved them. Because you were doing like garage rock stuff kind of at, at the beginning, no, right? It, well it was like it was rock? like it was like spazzy kind of noise stuff. We were on like AMREP and Calvin Crime and then Shauna Na was kinda like like indie pop, like Elvis Costello kind of songs. Okay. Um so with that band with Shauna Na, I opened for the Rondells in the Midwest and um their van started on fire and I ended up like driving two of them out to the West coast to finish their tour while we shipped all their gear from Minneapolis. Cause I was just like not on tour and not working and, uh, ended up hanging out with them a lot and becoming their, they, um, ended up just, you know, hiring me to drive them on the next tour that they did, which was with the Mooney Suzuki. So at the end of the tour, I was going to go home because I'd already been on a tour on my own for like a month before that and then another month. So they convinced me to do the New York show or just drive them up there, you know, and I was like, okay, okay, I'll just go one more day. And then um, the day of the show, the guitar player from Mooney Suzuki was trying to pop their van into gear by hand or something by like <laughs> reaching under it and um, ended up running over his own arm with the van. <laughs> oh, my God. So they couldn't play the show. Um, and they were one of the Strokes' favorite bands, so like they were like, "Well, you got your stuff with you. Why don't you just do like a Harmar set?" So I ended up playing, and Julian and Fab and Albert were all in the audience, um, and I didn't meet them that night. Uh, but uh, flash forward to like a few months later, I hadn't even really heard their music yet. They were kind of newer. Um, but then, like five months later, I get talked into going down to Lawrence to see the Strokes play. After I was in Omaha recording with the Faint guys, I was like going to go home. And they're like, just come down to the show. And I was like, ah, all right, fine. <laughs> Another, like, these two, like, and I was like, all right, I, I do want to see what it's all about. They're not coming to Minneapolis for a while. And I was blown away by the show. And I went to an after party at um, my friend Ryan Pope's house from the Get Up Kids, the drummer. Hmm. And they were all there, all the Strokes guys. And, um, so I'm talking to Julian just like kind of in the kitchen, like against a wall for a while, like just sort of like, you know, kind of commenting on the show and people walking by. And, and at, at this that point, like was the first record out yet or was it just the... Yeah. The... Or uh, no, the record was out. It okay. had just come out. Okay. Or it was just about to come out or okay. something was like people knew, you know, they were selling out the Granado, which holds like, you know, a thousand people. Um, I think the record was just about to come out. Okay. Um, but uh, at that point, the Harmar thing had taken off, and Lawrence was one of the first places where I did well. So okay. some girl walked by and was like, Harmar, what's going on? <laughs> and Julian was like, wait, where's Harmar? I love that guy. And I was like, dude, you've been talking to me for like 15 minutes. And he was like, holy <laughs> shit, what? And I was like, I took out my glasses, and he was like, oh, fuck, it is you. And um, <laughs> we just ended up like hanging out all night, and he like asked me to go on tour with them like right on the spot. And like I was like, yeah, okay, that's going to happen. And then... Sure enough, I got the call like two days later where I was like confirmed on the three weeks of the Is This It tour, like for the first run of the record. And so basically like I think all the support slots were kind of split up between me and the Moldy Peaches. Okay. And Long Wave did a bunch. They did all the shows that I did on that that uh, leg. It was like me and Long Wave would like switch being first and second every other day. And you talk about this in the book, how this was like right after 9-11, so like plane tickets were really cheap. Yeah, so I was flying to all the shows just by myself. And I also had like, for a big chunk of it, was supposed to have like my friend who 
was getting miles like to become a pilot yeah driving, riding a set or driving a you know flying his Cessna flying me around and uh it was super like just like not um it wasn't pressurized so my ears were like fucked at all those shows <laughs> and like we brought her along another friend who like ended up giving the strokes Klonopin, even though I asked him not to. Right, you and, talk about that in the book. Because everybody was getting really manic already at that point. Like, everybody was, the, everybody was coming apart at that point. Um, like, already? Yeah, I mean, it was just like, it was like Beatlemania. Like, people were, like, swarming their busts, and, like, you know, people, you know, Albert was getting real fucked up, and and everybody else was acting out in their own ways, you know what I mean? And uh, just things that none of them would do today. It's kind of crazy to to, like think about that time you know and then like having to have like the conversations like we don't want to play arenas you know we want to be closer to the fans and like all this kind of stuff where like everybody was supposing stuff that actually was about to happen but like they were all these these decisions you wouldn't really need to make in any sort of normal situation you know yeah and that just like strains so many friendships in so many ways and all of a sudden you're like a business instead of like a group like a gang of friends you know what i mean it's like even on that first tour yo just immediately yeah you know and it was like every girl loved them half the guys loved them the only guys that didn't like them were the boyfriends of the girls that (laughs) loved them you know what i mean yeah it was like a really weird dynamic and everybody was having a great time but i think like the partying like just like just drove a stake just squarely in the middle of just the friendships. And I think that's what people started to get really sad about, you know? I mean, like, did it feel that way at the time or at the time? Was it just fun? Cause you're like partying on the road. And I mean, for me it was a spectacle, but I also felt bad for these guys who were like, kind of like, you know, like, um, I think they were getting challenged on like their, their, um, influences a lot, even though they, you know, sounded a little bit like television not right. really, you know what I mean? Like, right. Like, people would be like, oh, you're ripping them off. And they're like, we honestly have never even heard that. You know what I mean? Like, we didn't, you know, I think I showed them the replacements, like, on the bus. I was like, you guys remind me of these guys. Like, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is really cool. I was like, we have never heard it at all. And they're like, <laughs> I don't know. We kind of just, like, you know, Green Day and Pearl Jam a lot. And like, <laughs> you know, and I'm, they, you know, obviously listen to a lot of different music along the way. But, like, like you know. I think they focused on writing more than listening, you know? Yeah. A lot of the time. How did that... like students of just like being tight songwriters. Right. Well, then I know they were big Guided by Voices fans. Oh, yeah. And they too. were Guided by Voices. Yeah. And I remember, because I was a huge Guided by Voices fan. I mean, I still am, but I remember... Yeah. They did like a whole tour with them. Yeah. yeah. It, like where they were the opening act. I think that was like right around that same time. All right, guys. We're going to take a quick pause. I can tell you about our... Next sponsor for this week's episode, and that is our friends at Harry's. Uh, And uh, this is actually an opportune time to talk about Harry's because Father's Day is just around the corner, and dads are impossible to shop for. I'm sure you know this if you've ever shopped for your own dad or your father-in-law or your husband. It's difficult to find something that feels special that he'll actually use, something that he'll use every day. Well, Harry's is that product. Fortunately, our friends over at Harry's have a special offer that you're going to love, and Dad will too. You get $5 off one of their shave sets, including a limited edition Father's Day set, if you go to harrys.com backslash rock. And uh, as someone who has used Harry's before, I have to say that uh, it is one of the finer razors I've ever used. And I'm one of those guys who has to shave every day because I'm a pretty hair suit man, to put it delicately. Uh... And with Harry's, I know that I'm going to get, get a good, get a nice, clean shave at a fair price. And uh, this great Father's Day set is a good way to introduce good razors to the man in your life in a fun way, in a gift way. Shave sets start at just $15, not to mention the $5 off when you go to harrys.com backslash rock. You get a razor handle, a moisturizing shave gel, and three of Harry's five-blade precision-engineered razors. Harry's limited edition Father's Day shave set comes with a storm gray razor handle, chrome razor razor stand, foaming shave gel, three replacement blades, and a travel cover. Plus, it comes in a sleek, giftable box with the option to add custom engraving and a personalized card for free. All you have to do is go to harrys.com backslash rock right now to redeem a special offer for fans of this show. Harry's will give you your $5 off one of their shave sets. 
This is for a limited time only, so act now. That's harrys.com backslash rock to get $5 off and help support the show. Okay, let's go back. How did the thing with the clonopin turn out, by the way? Um, it was like a thing where, I mean, like, you know, I, I just ha- I told, I just had to send those guys home. Like, I felt bad. I was like, <laughs> dude, I told you not to, like, give these guys, like, any any drugs at all. Like, I just don't want to be part of the whole, like, breakdown of this band, you know. And so they went home. We're fine. We're friends still. Um, but, uh, and, you know, it wasn't like people were, like, pissed at me. I just felt really bad about it. I was like, fuck, this, not, this wouldn't have happened unless if I wasn't here and then everyone's like, you know, that's bullshit. Like these guys are like going to find drugs wherever they're going to, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and so that was kind of nearing the end of the run. And I think everybody just kind of like split off and did their own thing. And, uh, and then they all took like a trip to Hawaii together as a band, which I think like really solidified them back as like friends again. They didn't have to like deal with, any bullshit of just outside world stuff. They just sort of like got back to like realizing that they loved each other. You know what I mean? Like it was just one of those things, but I think just people's egos were getting out of hand and yeah. And uh, yeah, there's just so many expectations. I mean, I, I would, I do not envy their position in that at all right it was kind of like crazy to sit and watch you know it's just it's just crazy and kind of sad that it was our it was that fast that even you think that on the first tour it'd just be like even if even if it is like Beatlemania, you know you think we're like the beatles yeah this is great I mean, yeah well i mean they'd been working their asses off and i think everyone was just tired you know what i mean like that's just that's i think that's just a yeah i mean a human response i've seen it happen to so many other bands too it's not just those guys you know i mean like you like you said for you, it just as sort of like a, I mean, you're on the tour, but in a way you're a bystander. You said it was like a spectacle. Like, yeah. Like what stands out to you from that period? You know, I mean, cause like in my mind, I'm just picturing like cocksucker blues, you know? Like yeah. I mean, you know, it wasn't like, that. I mean, I just think people were just like, you know, um, I mean, people were just like trashing hotel rooms and like <laughs> jumping out of bus windows and stuff like that. And so like really like kind of weird, dangerous behavior that like, is like classic rock and roll, but like is not as fun as you think it would be when you read about it in a book. You know what I mean? Right, like, right. Oh fuck! Now we got to deal with this. Well, because I, I, I think there's a quote in the book. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I mean, because I think there's a quote in the book where you talk about there was like a party at Chad Smith's house from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and I think you said something like, you know, that that Julian in a way felt pressure to be like this Guns N' Roses party guy. Now, yeah, I mean, I think some... he just was partying. I think like he's just like he doesn't go halfway with anything. So when he was drinking and doing drugs, he was full on belligerent party man, yeah. you know, that needed to be like carried home or like, I just remember like, you know, and, and it's like, that's so worlds away from what he is now. He's like a family man and just so right, very like chill and methodical and, and like, he just puts all of that energy into like thinking about music and weird ideas that he has and following through with them. I mean, do you get the sense that he's like embarrassed by the that stuff now, um, or or is it sort of like, well, these are my war stories, and like I think I, I think like they're war stories he'd never talk of that he just knows he has, and I think he's not like embarrassed. He's not proud, probably. I don't know. I can't speak for him, but um, but uh, yeah. I mean, it was just you know, it was just like a wild. I just remember that like at the end of that night, he was like, "All right, you got to come stay with me." at the hotel or get me back to the hotel and I got the cab and got him back there and then we get in the hallway and he's like so where's your room I was like dude I don't have a room here you made me come back here and he's like alright and then we like get in the room and he just like passes out on like literally on top of me and he's like a six and a half foot giant guy so I was yeah. just like <laughs> so like laying trying not to like shift and wake him up right <laughs> Well, yeah, I, like think you, I think you said you. I think you refer to yourself as like as his bodyguard at that time. Or, well, like, or did know, he call I you that? I I kind of started acting like a little bodyguard. I think at that <laughs> point I just started like pull him out of situations. And like, all right, we gotta we gotta get out of here now. And like just before you know, you know, before the uh, before the mean the mean like side would come out. You know what I mean? So yeah, because everybody kind of has that when they have a few too many whiskeys or whatever you know like right 
Like, you're just like, oh, okay, before anything gets said that's, like, insane that you can't take back, I'm just going to, like, pull you out of the room, which I wish I had a lot of the time nowadays. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, like, like, when, like, like, when you talk about, like, like the pressure that was going on and, like, just, I mean, from how you're describing it, it sounds like it was kind of miserable at times just being, like, under that microscope. I mean, the thing that kind of blows me away about that period is that a lot of those bands kind of had like a rock star like profile in the media, even though they weren't, it wasn't like they were selling 12 million records like Guns yeah. N' Roses was, you know, but like in terms of the media coverage, they like the strokes always seemed in a way like more popular than they really were. Yeah. I mean, I mean, is it, I mean was it just the media like scrutiny that was like, I think it was this cultural phenomenon that they had that they impacted like literally everything from like style to sound of everything for like the whole world of what we were all into you know what i mean it was like very the moment and like uh they were first and the internet was kind of like starting burgeon and like i think like you know it there's a quote that like if their record would have come out like three to five years before it did they would have sold like five times as many because people actually bought records at that point you know yeah so it's like it's hard to say but um I think I just got way off the point there. <laughs> no, no, no. Like, I mean, like one thing that, that that's interesting in the book. Uh, one thing I explore is that, and, and this was a thing at the time too, was this sort of media created rivalry between the Strokes and the White Stripes. Oh yeah, they and were friends. They, they were friends, and like the book talks about that. And I know that, um, and but it is an interesting contrast because you know the Strokes in a way burned so hot and then they kind of burned out whereas jack white obviously has kind of gone on and had this yeah huge well he career. also had like three records before anyone even knew who the white stripes were i mean you think that was the difference i think that yeah because they'd worked for a while and like kind of like went through the trenches a bit more and um i think that does make a big difference so when it happens you're like ready for it you're like oh fucking finally right it's not like whoa this is happening right away like you know what I mean? Like, yeah, and they played in clubs. And, and you can appreciate that aspect. And you're like, well, this is fucking amazing that I'm getting like my full rider every night. And like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, people are coming to the shows. And I spent like five years with nobody coming to anything. Or, um, I think that is kind of a big, big deal or a big difference, I think, uh, between those two or just sort of anybody that that comes up really fast or like somebody who kind of just rises on their own right um well and jack called you minibar was yeah. his nickname for you because like you knew him back when again the white stripes weren't yeah we all well known we all toured together in australia there was this tour called uh, livid festival which was like the stage that we were on was uh white stripes black rebel motorcycle club yeah, 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 Liars, Me, Whirlwind Heat, and I think Jesse Mallon was on that stage, too. It was just, like, a crazy lineup. Yeah. We just all traveled around Australia together. So he had plenty of time to see me, like, you know, rolling around in the grass, wasted somewhere in, you know, like a <laughs> field in Australia. I was like, oh, mini bars here again. Well, and, and you say something interesting in there, like, because I think people have this image of Jack White as this sort of, like, stern traditionalist guy who's like making guitars out of like wood or something and you and you kind of <laughs> talk about him pianos and fucking, yeah. yeah exactly <laughs> and you kind of talk about him being like in your experience like at that time anyway being kind of a goof goofy guy he's still a goofball yeah he's just like you know uh just a total total goofball i don't know yeah like i mean like you know he has like how so he has his feuds i mean he's just like a funny person you know i'm, I'm trying to like i can't really give straight up examples off the top of my head he's just yeah. like as if i think of him i just think of like the jokester you know right I mean? like just fun funny guy that uh like you know won't invite you over to his house and like make an omelet in the middle of the night while just you know <laughs> just fucking around making jokes like the rest of us would right you know, you know right. i don't know i can't it's just like a guy i mean like <laughs> that's not like scary like when you I saw mean, he's terrifyingly huge right if you got him mad him or julian you'd be you would want to run very very far away well and, and, <laughs> but, and jack white it seems like he's in good shape too so yeah. i think he could take you out i mean like did you ever uh i mean when you like back then did you feel like oh this guy's gonna 
have a 20 year plus career. I mean, definitely. I mean, I thought I still think they, they, they both do. I mean, I love what Julian's doing now with the voids and his own stuff and the strokes, whenever they put something out, it's still amazing. I think they just get like the short end of the stick sometimes as far as like just the first record being such a milestone. Talking about the, like Julian and the strokes. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think that's, it has nothing to do with, they just both have different methods of their, their madness, you know? Right. But, uh, I mean, I think they're both going to still influence music and be, you know, innovators for quite some time. So, yeah, you know, it's like in the book too, you, you talk about Interpol a bit. Yeah. Like how did you end up in sucked into that world? Um, I mean, it was all just New York. Everybody was like up within a block of each other. Was so this you, like when you, like, had you moved there at this time? No, this was way before. I mean, I was touring and playing the same festivals as all these bands. So, okay. I think Paul and I met and hung out for the first time uh, when I was um, at Glastonbury, the first time I played there. And um, I don't know. I just, some Someone gave me like a bag of like 20 ecstasy pills and I just like was like walking around <laughs> handing them out <laughs> all weekend. And we ended up just like hanging out and having like the best weekend and sort of gelling our friendship then so whenever i'd get to new york i'd call him and then run into carlos d and all those guys and paul makes was really funny in the book yeah he's surprisingly funny funny. like i didn't expect him to be as funny he's a funny guy i mean like i feel like you have to have a sense of humor to kind of like survive all this shit (laughs) you know what i mean so so uh so yeah he's he's a great dude he's just like just a Funny guy, fun to hang out with. He would have a DJ night at Dark Room, so you could always you always knew where to find him, you know. So uh, he was just sort of a staple of one of the guys that I would hang out with. And actually, after I read the book, I was like, "Holy shit!" I haven't talked to him for a while. I started texting him. I was like, "Dude, I haven't talked to you for like five years or at least," you know. And I was just like back to like where we left off. So yeah, it's fun to read the book for those kind of like reconnections, you know. How about Carlos D? I mean, you talk about hanging out at his place and there, there'd be like, you know, sort of slightly overweight girls hanging out. <laughs> yeah, he's he into bigger Chips. girls. Yeah. yeah. That was his thing. I mean, when I was, there was a point where I was touring with Kelly Osborne and stuff and that was like his dream girl at the point. So it was, there was no secret. It wasn't like something you make fun of him about. He's, he's just like fully forthright. It was like, I like big girls. And you're like, that's awesome. You know what you like? So you go, you go over to his apartment and you'd be like, it just felt like you were in like some like 19... 50s bordello of like (laughs) (laughs) some bigger girls everyone's listening to like uh records off a turntable and there's like a like uh you know a landline like rotary phone (laughs) (laughs) like you know nothing modern no cell phone no computer no no sign of anything past like 1970 there you know yeah. You know, he's always wearing like a gun holster for his cigarettes. Like he loved to be like that guy. <laughs> you know? I mean, it sounds like he would have been like that even if he hadn't have been in this band. Oh yeah, I mean he, you know, he he's not in the band anymore because he like went deep into like New York theater scene and he's like a full on like actor's actor, like uptown. You don't see him around anymore. He's just fully into this other world, and. uh I didn't know he was an actor. Yeah. Is yeah. that common knowledge? It is. I mean, I think he's like, he's addressed it a couple of times. He's come out of like. Is he uh, still known as Carlos? De- is that his Carlos name? Dingler, I think is his real name. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. That just um, seems like a made up name. Yeah. I would assume that was like a, that, that's not his real yeah, name. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, he's, he's made some statements about, I think, I think he like a year or two ago. is like, I want, I know people are wondering what I've been up to and I've been like uptown just acting, going deep into this thing. And I think. That's really cool. I mean, I just think he just sort of like, he just does his own thing. He just sort of like is not, that's his old life. You yeah. Know? But I don't really know why or, or or what like caused him to like really just cut everybody off or, well, or I mean, if he even did. I don't know. Maybe you just don't see him. So that, I mean, the impression I get from the book is that life was totally awful in Interpol. Like after that record came out, like it just sounds like Paul Banks and Carlos D didn't get along and that there was like, See, I don't know. I don't really know all about about all of that. I just I remember hanging out and everybody seemed pretty fun, (laughs) and you know what I mean. Like, and it wasn't like uh, it was. I that wasn't apparent to me. They were they were good at covering it up at least, or just not talking about it. Like when they were out and about. So 
that could have been going on. Right. But I would never have known. Yeah. When you also talk about like the killers in the book. Well, I mean, I just see them around. You know, it's, you just I, see the killers a little bit. You know, bit. sometimes some of those like things are like, you know, the killers, that was based on like a couple nights at the Columbia Hotel, like when I'd be hanging out in London and like they were kind of like the youngsters coming up or like the new guys. Yeah. And they had a single that I hadn't heard and I was like, oh shit, this is like really good. These these guys are going to go really far. But they, you just could tell that they were like kind of uh, more reserved Probably just because they didn't know everybody as much, but also I could tell, like, I don't know, it just seemed like Brandon had his shit together, you know? And you're yeah. like, oh, this guy's going to, like, crush it. Especially after you hear the music, you're like, oh, God. Yeah. These guys are these guys are going to blow the fuck up. It's going to be great for them. All right, guys, one more break here. We're going to want to talk about our last sponsor for this week's episode, and that is SeatGeek. Buying tickets to sports and concerts can be complicated, but there is a better, simpler way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to live events. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing your favorite team or musician in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. Now, I have the SeatGeek app on my phone and uh, it's the easiest thing that I have found to help me shop for tickets. I can be anywhere, and with just a few taps, I can have the seats that I want. I actually just used SeatGeek to buy tickets to see Tom Petty last week. I think I talked about that last week. Uh, it was a great show. Loved it. Awesome time. And I was glad that I could have SeatGeek hook me up with the seats uh, that put me in a good spot. See American Girl and Breakdown and all those tunes. Um, SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. It saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets with confidence. Now, because I know that there are a lot of concert goers out there in my audience... We have a special deal for you listeners. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code CELEBRATION today. That's promo code CELEBRATION and you will get $20 off your next SeatGeek purchase. That's right. You're going to be buying tickets anyway. Why not download the app, get your $20 off, and you're going to be supporting the podcast at the same time. Again, just download the SeatGeek app. Enter promo code CELEBRATION and get your $20 off. To me, this era is always interesting because it's really fun and exciting to talk about because this, you know, there's so many big, colorful personalities and there were a lot of great records that came out of that time. But then there's always this feeling, too, of like kind of squandered potential because like a lot of bands made one or two good records and then maybe they imploded or they went on long hiatuses. Yeah. I mean, what are you, what's your impression of, of that? I mean, obviously it's you, hard to say, you know what I mean? Like you never know where shit's going to go. Uh, I feel like, I mean, those guys were fun. The killers guys were fun. They just didn't like, they weren't as like, um, I don't think, uh, they weren't as big of partiers in that way that everybody was kind of like, I, and I think that comes from, I think the way that everybody else was partying was because of like more of like this, tortured artist mindset you know what i mean <laughs> yeah. like where it's like ah, god fuck this i'm gonna get so fucked up right now you know what i mean and those guys are just like i don't know we're having a blast why 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 ruin it with all these like drugs and stuff you know what so i mean that, like that, that's the fascinating <laughs> thing talking to you about this because like you know on paper in a way you think oh this 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 seems so fun and cool it's like this rock and roll lifestyle but like hearing people talk about it in the book and even talking to you now it just it doesn't seem fun at it's, all. It's it's a lot not enviable a lot of times. I don't think. I think I have I've had like a lucky kind of like sub kind of like cult thing myself. Yeah. So I've never really had to like implode. You know, yeah. I've just sort of like been comfortably like recognizable to certain people, but like and can live off my my music. But I don't really have to like sacrifice every part of my life for it you know what i mean right. for like this fame thing because the fame is i think what really destroys people you know well in, in every aspect of like you know in sports and music and acting and whatever you know when you mentioned before like how you know you're, you're so friends with karen o and 
I think like I mean I know you toured with the IAS back then, mm-hmm. and I mean isn't there a thing in there too? Like like I mean it sounds like she was having a tough time. Yeah, like I mean she was, she was off. like you know she was like uh, all of a sudden she's like a cultural phenomenon like everybody else, but she's <laughs> right. also like this like this like picture of a strong woman like and it's like the only one that people had for that time you know maybe like Allison from the kills but she was more like understated and Karen was like a superhero on stage but off stage she's kind of like a very sensitive person and uh super like just doesn't want that kind of attention you know what I mean yeah until she gets on stage and then she like makes it happen and demands it but there's that that fine line where you can't really like have both at a certain point. And now yeah. she's found it, you know what I mean? I think you grow up and you figure it out and she's has like a kid now and is a great mom and has her life and knows how to kind of like navigate that world, but nobody really does until you're thrust into it and then you sort of either freak out or go with it or do both. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so, I think for for like as much pressure as was put on them too, uh, I think they handled it very well, even though they had their freakouts. And yeah, wasn't there a story about her? Like she almost got crushed by an amp or something. Yeah, in Australia, that was like a that was a, a crazy night. Like I mean, she, uh, I was we, that was on that same Livid Fest tour. We were doing club shows throughout the towns when we weren't doing the festival, and uh, she was playing. They were playing a big theater in Sydney. I can't remember which one, but um, yeah, I mean, she was just having a dangerous show, and you know, I think the more attention you get and the more like kind of expectation there is the more you're like kind of like i gotta get crazier this show and i gotta like this dark energy kind of takes over like where you need to go with your performance or what's expected of you so she was like crawling around on the monitors and literally just like i just she just disappeared like flipped over and then it like landed like basically on her head oh my god six foot drop and those things are not light (laughs) you know what i mean that was like I mean, that was like scary as hell. We all thought like, all right, we just watched our friend die. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and so that was like a a heavy moment. And she somehow got up and finished the song. I think it was maps even. That was something like, (laughs) you know, really tender. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm remembering that too fantastically. It's just as being maps, but, um, let's say it's maps. (laughs) It's It's a better story if it's maps. But, uh, she finished it, and then she's like, I got to go to the hospital. And then me <laughs> yeah. and Dave Burton, the tour manager, like, and a bunch of other people, like, got her into the ambulance. And we're just like, just chill. Take your time. Like, you don't have to play shows. Like, if you don't want to, like, this is, like, terrifying. Like, this show almost, like, killed you for sure. Right. So, like, so, I mean, she did. She, like, powered through and played all the rest of the things. It was, it was, a, it was a scary few days, though, like, you yeah. know, checking in on your friend who has, like, a frankenstein lump on her head and yeah yeah you're like you just don't nobody knows where that's gonna lead luckily she bounced back to be the same karen that rules so i mean <laughs> so i keep asking you about like how friends of yours were dealing with the whole scene there at the time like what about you i mean you were doing these like you know sex-fueled shows as harmar superstar <laughs> a lot of nudity there's like debauchery going on backstage um, I mean, what was your life like then compared to now? And like, how do you feel? Oh, I mean, it was a that? lot more wild. I definitely like was kind of like was, you know, uh, more out of control. Not in like a crazy, like not any sort of like evil way. You know what I mean? It's like very, uh, very manageable. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was manageable, uh, insanity. Yeah. But, but like now it's like more just like chill. I have like. I kind of like was unaccountable for anything at that point. Cause it was just me kind of like rolling around by myself and doing my shows on my own. Well, I was going to say too, cause I mean, you're, you're, you're playing this character essentially on stage yeah. and yet I imagine there must've been this expectation that you were just going to be that guy all the time. Yeah. I mean, Cause you're obviously a pretty mild mannered yeah. person, but that character is this larger than life. Yeah. But at that, at that point I kind of wanted to be that all the time. So it was like <laughs> right. kind of fun and you know, I could choose to switch it on and off and, and if somebody was like, "Oh God, you're way more boring than I expected," I'd just be like, "Yeah, well, fucking, what do you, what do you want?" Was there anything like at that time <laughs> that you can remember where you were just like, "Oh, okay, maybe I've crossed the line here," or is yeah, it a too crazy? I mean, God, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's there was definitely like you know times. When I, was, I think there was one show that I was playing in Australia with Neon Neon, this band that I was in with Griff from Super Furry Animals and Boom Bip and Kate Lebon, a bunch of people. Um, 
where I was kind of like, just like kind of like fueled by this like phantom expectation to like just be larger than life. And I ended up like through the audience, like in a tree in the back of the crowd, like, who wants to fuck me? And like, you know what I mean? And I was just like, at the end of the show, I was like, oh my God, that is the most embarrassing. Fuck. I feel such like such an idiot. You know what I mean? Like when you like go too far and your friends are like, yeah, maybe that was too much. You're like, yeah. I just had to put myself on timeout for like two days and just be like, just reconsider my whole life. See, but now you, <laughs> but you knew where the line was then. You got to cross the line and know where the line is. Yeah. We've been talking about like, you know, this book and obviously, you know, there's this sort of renewed interest, I think, in like early 2000s New York rock music. Like for you, like, how do you think that era should be remembered? You know, um, what should we take from that, you think? I mean, I just I think you should just remember the music, and not like the the, the cult of personality around it. You know what I yeah. mean? Because I mean, is this it? Is a perfect record. So is Room on Fire. Honestly, I think. Oh yeah, I I, I think Strokes got like thrown under the bus for that. Just I for, often argue that I like Room on Fire a little bit more. Yeah, I mean they're both great. They're both awesome. Yeah, I mean I think if you put both of them on at, on random in a room, everybody would know all of the songs and they wouldn't know which record, which one's from for right. a lot of the time. So there's like this weird, like argument that people just have ingrained in them. But, um, that and like, you know, yeah, yeah, yes. And also, you know, like, like we didn't even touch on this yet, but like the James Murphy chapters in the book are amazing. Like I love all the LCD stories and just how like his persona came to be right. from like being a curmudgeonly like sound guy at Brownies for a hundred people a night to like becoming like this, like, you know, God of <laughs> indie dance music. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Kind of unwittingly. <laughs> do, you, do you know Murphy at all? Yeah. He's a good, awesome. He's an awesome guy. He's also just fucking hilarious. And just one of those guys that has like a lot. I mean, he could have his own book. Yeah. It's like, you know, what's the thing that, you know, there, there was definitely a lot of drama with a lot of these bands, but you know, everyone's, Seems to have made it through the to the other side, more or less, in one piece, and yeah. they seem to be doing okay now. Yeah, totally. I think I think everyone's everyone's come out the other end like a a sane person, and is like much happier than maybe when things seemed like they would have been like the best if from an outside perspective. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I think I think everyone got a chance to like be normal. Yeah, and we're like, oh, I like this too. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, I don't know, when you're in your early 20s, you're like, I just, you want to be like extraordinary. Right. And then once you figure out that not everybody, nobody really is. You yeah. know what I or, mean? Or like, there's like a next day after you're extraordinary. Yeah, and what exactly. are you, you going to be extraordinary again? Like, yeah, I already like, did that. I don't yeah. want to take a nap now. Yeah, exactly. I want to take a load off, exactly. have a barbecue. Yeah. No, it's just, it's just that thing. I think it's just, you know, to me, it's like reading a yearbook of my 20s. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's really fun for me. Yeah. And it's not like, I really don't think it's as dark as it even seems when it gets dark in certain passages and stuff. Like there was a definitely a looming darkness, but for the most part, everybody was having a good time. Well, and you know, especially if you compare it to like Seattle, you know, the Seattle music scene of the nineties, like yeah. a lot of those people have, have died, you know, yeah. and that seems maybe more tragic in a way. It's like, well, yeah, we had our misadventures, but you know, we made it and yeah. we're okay now. Yeah. I feel like a lot of, a lot of, you know, most, most of us survived, which is kind yeah. of like a, that's kind of like, a, I think a telling, telling thing for like just the difference in the generations there. Cause in the nineties people were like living a lot darker. Right. You know what I mean? Well, and you kind of see, also, and you I see think, what happened before you too, in a way it's like, okay, well, I don't want to end up like this guy. Or, yeah. You know, so you can, well, you, you know what to avoid maybe. A little and there's easier. that, like, I think there's a lot more accountability as far as being a public persona now because there's like just internet can like blow up in your face at any second you know what i mean like you can't just like go down a dark hole like you could in the 90s because like people would have no idea what you're up to unless you were like a blurb in rolling stone or spin or something right you well, know what i mean like that's all I like people would know about you like i uh, there's also the thing that i don't think any rock star is going to is going to be as famous as Kurt Cobain was no. in like 1993. You know, like no. he, you know, because like as big as these bands were in the early 2000s, like they were not doing like Pearl Jam numbers, like yeah, what Pearl yeah. Jam was doing or something. Or, totally. So 
I it's mean, fascinating it's impossible thing. to do. Yeah, yeah exactly. And it's people like, don't like sell posters of themselves anymore. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the nineties really were like the steroid era, not just in baseball, but in music. You yeah. Know? It was just, just pumped with yeah. so much stuff. There's no like eight by 10 glossies <laughs> around. Yeah. Well, Sean, I'm so glad you came in, man. It was great talking yeah, to you about this. Yeah, this was great, man. man. All right. Take care. Trip down memory lane. All right. <laughs> All right. That was Sean Tillman. Harmar Superstar, sharing lots of good stories from the early 2000s. If you're a fan of The Strokes, Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, Killers, Interpol, all that stuff, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, I could have had Sean in here for three hours just telling stories about the first Strokes tour. You know, I, I would have wanted to talk about every night of that tour and what happened backstage, but we have to cut this off at some point. So we're going to stop right now. <laughs> Going to cap this episode of Celebration Rock. Before we go, I just want to thank our sponsors for today's episode. Uh, our friends at ZipRecruiter, Harry's, and SeatGeek. Thank you so much for your support. And remember, when you support our, our sponsors, you support the podcast. So please, if you may, if you need seats, if you need razors, if you're hiring somebody, please go to our sponsors. Um, also, um, I want to, and I say this every episode, but I, I, I mean it. I really appreciate you guys talking about the podcast, uh, whether it's in social media or if you're just talking to your pals while you're hanging out, um, or if you took the time to leave a review for us on, on iTunes. Uh, all these things have helped us grow the podcast, and we really need your support in order to survive. So thank you so much for, for being there for us, and uh, hopefully... Uh, We'll keep on putting out good shows for you guys. Uh, thanks again for listening, and uh, we will talk to you again next week.